Good morning, church. My name's Steve. I'm glad you're here. Would you stand? We know that God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. Let's try to look like him. Let's sound like him. Let's do like he does. Come all you weary. Come all you thirsty. Come to the well that never runs dry.
seat for a second. I'm going to tell you, um, the firm foundation that we have in Jesus Christ is better than anything else that the world has to offer. The firm foundation that we find in Jesus Christ, his love and the way that he tells us how to live is better than anything else that the world has to offer. The world will tell you a different thing. The world will lie to you. And sometimes your heart lies to you as well because you, on your own, can't do this. We're going to say that to you and say that to you and say that to you over and over and over again because we have tried to live on our own and we've found that Jesus Christ, his way is way better. And so that's what we want to make sure that we're focused on as we come into a time when we remember that Jesus Christ, he set up something that we still do today, still do every week. When we gather together, we remember that he sacrificed everything. He showed us a, a type of love that nobody else could show us. He showed a type of love that nobody else in the world can be able to give. And so what we want to do is make sure that we are always memorializing that when we come together. So in a few moments, you're going to go around this room to the many tables that are here, and you'll be able to take communion together. And this is a way for us as a family, with all the things that separate us and all the things that make us different and all the different things that we, that we are, we come together and we say, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of God's grace, and I want to remember that Jesus Christ did what he did on the cross, and that's why I'm here today. So when you take the juice and the bread, this is a way to remember his blood and his body that were sacrificed for you and if this place is home to you and you want to give an offering we have boxes that are there we have this other thing that's a little bit different called the generous bucket You've never been to this church before essentially what we do is outside of your your first uh, offering that you give you can give to people in need in this community that's what the white buckets are there for so you would go ahead and stand up again and i want you to go to the table and remember this is a family and everybody around you is family let's keep that in mind I want to thank you for being here today. There's a chance that you're here for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time and you are potentially unaware of the sermon series that you are now right in the middle of. Last week, Doc started this series out that we're calling At Odds and he started by talking about controversies that are surrounding gender in our culture right now. Today, I get the opportunity to talk about sexuality and specifically sexuality concerning same-sex relationships. 
Some of you may be wondering why a preacher would even care to talk about such things. Quite frankly, we don't really want to. But we're going to talk about this because our culture is changing and our worldview is changing. Our anthropology, which is our view of man, our theology, which is our view of God, they're all changing. And we're going to talk about this because many of the problems and issues and struggles are real. And some of the answers, some of the solutions being offered are not God-honoring. If you're a Jesus follower, you shouldn't be uh, too concerned with culture's opinion. In fact, your opinion or my opinion don't really even matter. The big question is whether or not God has an expectation. And then, if my opinion matches his expectation. And it matters because he's not just our Savior, he's our Lord, right? Now, the stuff that Doc talked about last week and the stuff I get to talk about today is hard. And so I want to reiterate that Doc and I are going to ask for your grace. We're probably going to say some things inelegantly. We're probably not going to say things the way that you'd say it. Because the things we'll be talking about are so polarizing, what we're going to try to say, some of you may not be able to hear. Our job is to try to convey God's truth with God's grace. Sometimes that's really hard. And if you disagree with the way we understand God's truth and grace, we're still going to love you. And if you disagree with the way that we understand God's truth and grace, I hope that you would give us grace. Now, there's three sermons in this series. Doc covered gender. I get to talk about same-sex attraction. And next week, Doc will be talking about other sexual sins, the kinds that trip most all of us up. So I want to encourage you and remind you, please listen to all three. Try to listen to all of these in their proper context. These are issues, these are sins that we all struggle with. And Doc and I have no desire to single anybody out. Let's actually start with some stats to help us see that this isn't so much of a singling out. There's a psychology professor named Lisa Diamond. She says that 14% of women and 7% of men have experienced same-sex attraction, meaning that 14% of women and 7% of men at some point in their life have had a desire, have had a, some sort of an attraction towards somebody of the same sex. And that means that within this room right now, where there's roughly 300 people, that we would have around 40 women and around 20 men who have at some point felt attraction towards someone of the same sex. It doesn't mean that they're gay. It doesn't mean that they're lesbian. It doesn't mean that they're homosexual. It simply means that at some point, they felt that attraction. The study goes on to say that only 1% of women and only 2% of men experience only same-sex attraction. And that means that within this room, there's approximately three women and six men who would say that they don't ever feel any sort of desire or attraction towards someone of a different sex. That means that over the course of this morning, Within this building, there will be over 100 adults in this church in worship today who have at some point experienced same-sex attraction and a small percentage of them only ever experience same-sex attraction. This is not something that is distant or far away or not part of this church. This is not something that has been made up. These desires and attractions and feelings are real and they are really here in this church it's highly likely that every single person in this room has either experienced these desires or attractions or has a close friend or relative who has. And that's true for me. 
I have family members and I have people that I consider to be close friends who would identify in these kinds of ways and I've been blessed by their generosity and kindness and the ways that they've talked to me about their lives. It's given me freedom to be able to speak with them. It's encouraged me to check the things that I say this morning. I care deeply about being comfortable with everything that I say this morning as if these close friends, these family members of mine were sitting right across from me. Now this morning we won't be able to cover all of the different areas, all the things that I would like to discuss. And so if you're looking for more information or more discussion, again, I encourage you to join me and Doc this Wednesday night where we'll go more in depth, actually have more of an open dialogue. Um, this morning, though, this morning what I want to aim to do is I just simply want to explore what the Bible has to say about homosexuality. There are six places in the Bible that explicitly mention homosexuality. There's three in the Old Testament and there's three in the New Testament. The first one that you find just reading, if you open your Bible, the first one you'll come across is in Genesis chapter 19. It's a story that most of us are familiar with. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, so if you aren't familiar with it, I'd encourage you to go back and read it at a later time. This is a story that has been absolutely abused by churches and Christians, and it's been used to hurt anyone who experiences same-sex attraction. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by God. That's true. The way that the story has been taught by many people is that God destroyed these cities because of homosexual acts that were done by the citizens who lived there. Now, there's a problem with teaching the story that way. Years later, after this city, these two cities are destroyed, God has a prophet named Ezekiel. And in his book, called Ezekiel, chapter 16, he says that these two communities were demolished by God, not because of their rampant homosexuality, as it's often portrayed, but because of their inhospitality. It's a weird story. It's a crazy, strange story. But according to the prophet of God, the issue which these communities had was in, in hospitality, which means, and I want you to hear this, I really want you to hear this because it's going to be highly offensive to some of you. It means that Christians who have used this story against the gay and lesbian community are, the actu are actually the ones committing the sin of Sodom. Christians who use this story to push gay and lesbian people away are the ones committing the most sinful part of this story. Is that interesting? Sometimes we've used God's words to wound people while being guilty of the very thing that we've tried to weaponize. It's embarrassing to me. It's unacceptable and it's wrong. And if you're part of that gay and lesbian community or if you know people who've been hurt by churches and Christians who've used this story against the homosexual community, I hope, I hope that you can hear me confess that the church has not always been innocent in this. And I can't speak for everyone, but I can speak for myself, and I can tell you that I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the word of God has been weaponized. And Christians, we need to do better. It's not the only place in the Old Testament that talks about this, though. In the Old Testament, there's two other places. They're both found in a book called Leviticus, and they both look similar to this verse. One's in chapter 18, one is in chapter 20. Chapter 18 says it this way, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is detestable. According to Jewish law, which was given by God, a man sleeping with a man is prohibited, not acceptable. Now the problem for us as we read this verse is that it's written in Leviticus, which is the Old Testament. It's a law for Jewish people. I'm not a Jewish person. This isn't my law. 
I'm part of the New Covenant. I live by the New Testament. And there are many other Old Testament laws that have been outgrown. There's rules that we've left behind. There's stuff like food regulations because we have and enjoy the freedom to eat bacon. There's stuff like clothing guidelines. We wear different kinds of fabrics and combinations of fabrics and we don't think twice about it. And according to Leviticus and the Old Testament law, we would be in violation. If you read through all of the laws of Leviticus, you'll find all sorts of rules that you have broken and that you will probably break even today. And there are some who would suggest that this law, this rule about homosexuality, falls in line with all those other rules we've outgrown. We've left some behind. We can leave this one behind as well. The problem is that just because some laws aren't for today doesn't mean that all laws from Leviticus should be thrown out. There's other rules in there that we would uphold today. There's rules about incest and adultery, child sacrifice, theft, on and on. Whenever we're looking into the Old Testament and we're trying to figure out what it means for us, we always want to see what the New Testament has to say, if it has anything to say at all. And the biggest reason that this couple verses that we find in Leviticus have any sort of legitimacy today within our conversation is because the New Testament seems to be supportive. There's three places in the Old Testament and there's three places in the New Testament where Paul mentions or references same-sex attraction or homosexuality. The first is in Romans chapter 1. Paul writes about those who have been outside of the law of God. They don't know him. They don't know what he would expect of them. And so according to Paul, they naturally progress down a road of depravity. And Paul says, because of this, God gave them over to their shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. It's a strange verse with pretty harsh language. It's condemning homosexuality for both women and men. It calls them unquestionably offensive. And the words are offensive, aren't they? How the Bible speaks about this is offensive. But the reality is that the Bible's offensive from beginning to end, especially when it's talking about sin. And there's lots of things in Scripture that are offensive to me because I have a lot of sin. I would prefer if the Bible didn't point it out to me, but it does. And just because I find God's words offensive doesn't mean that I disqualify His words. When I read these words, I ought to lean forward and pay attention. In fact, I found that the more offensive God tends to get with his words in Scripture, the more I ought to lean forward and pay attention. Paul backs this idea up with what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes to this young man named Timothy who's leading a church, and he says to them, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous Man, I got something wrong there. That threw me off. I'm going to have to go to these notes. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels. And that makes sense to us, right? We understand that the law would be for those who break the law. He says the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, and the irreligious. The law is made for people to hold them accountable. And then Paul gives a list. Paul's list is kind of strange. But we wouldn't disagree with most of these things. He says that the law is for uh, the murderers, or for, for those who killed their father and mothers, for murderers, 
for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. These words at very least reaffirm the scriptural prohibitions on sexual sin, heterosexual sins and homosexual sins. It's listed in between things like murder and slave catching. Our culture looks through this list and it's pretty comfortable with most of these things being mentioned as being wrong, except for those ones right in the middle, those sexual ones. The third scripture Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now there's some who uh, are Christian who are defensive of homosexuality. They will suggest that it is not a sin. And they'll often go to this specific passage. They'll point to the word that we've translated in English as homosexual. It's actually two different words in the Greek that make up what we translate into one. And the two different words in Greek refer to the two different roles within a same-sex male relationship. One of the words is feminine. One of the words is masculine. One man acts like a man sexually, while the other acts like a woman sexually. And for those who believe that homosexuality is not a sin, they look at these words and they go back to the cultural context in which these words are used. They claim that these words are referring to an inequity of relationship, meaning they claim that this isn't, about, this isn't about homosexuality, but instead it's about an unequal relationship. Greek culture celebrated homosexuality and homoeroticism. That's true. One common form of relationship that took place between, uh, of how this looked was between an older man and a young adolescent boy. Oftentimes, oftentimes, mothers themselves would seek out an older man to mentor, mentor their son for the potential social and economic gain. Mothers would sign their sons up for this. Modern thinkers look at these practices and they focus on the asymmetry, the inequity, the unequalness of the relationships. You have an older man who's taking advantage of a young boy. You have wealthy people using their status to take advantage of the poor. And so within that relationship, you have a man who treats a young boy as if he was a woman. They abuse their authority. It's argued that this is what Paul was speaking against, abuse to innocent people in a relationship. Within Roman culture, there was not as much of an openness towards homosexuality, but there was a permissive attitude if there was an inequity in the relationship. Men were allowed to treat their male slaves or male prostitutes in these kinds of ways. So long as there is inequity, homosexuality was permitted. And that seems to uphold the argument against inequity. This argument, this idea that Paul's writing against this unequalness. He's against inequity. He's not actually against homosexuality. There's a couple problems with looking at it in this kind of way. The first problem with this interpretation is that Paul condemns both roles. Both words are mentioned in his list of things that are unacceptable. The second problem is that there isn't anything in this passage, there isn't anything in any other passage in the New Testament that would seem to open the door to same-sex sexual relationships as being a form of a God-honoring relationship. There's a guy named Lewis Crompton who's a, a gay man. He's been called a pioneer in queer studies. He says this. 
He says, nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any other Jew or early Christian. The reality is that there isn't anything in the language that's used in the three New Testament passages that limits its meaning to this exploitive sexual partner, this inequity of relationship. And there isn't anything in the New Testament that opens the door to these types of relationships. In fact, according to this passage in 1 Corinthians 6, the very next verse, verse 11 says, and that is what some of you were. Which means that there were Christians in the very first church, in the very beginning, who had a homosexual history and desires, and Paul calls them away from it. Now, there are some people who point out the fact that Jesus doesn't say anything about same-sex sexual relationships. We've looked at the six passages and we haven't mentioned Jesus' name once. And it's true. Jesus doesn't say anything about it. Some point to that as a permissive attitude. I don't think that's fair because there's lots of things that Jesus didn't speak to. Jesus was speaking to a predominantly Jewish culture. They had strong restrictions and biases against homosexuality. There may not have been a need for him to directly address this. Jesus, in fact, doesn't say a whole lot about sexuality. He doesn't even say a whole lot about marriage. But Jesus does say a couple things. And when he does, I find it very interesting. When Jesus speaks, he doesn't broaden the scope of freedom. He doesn't lower the standard of, or expectation. Instead, he actually tightens those expectations. He, in fact, actually raises the bar. In Matthew chapter 19, there's a scenario where there's a group of Pharisees who are trying to trap him with the Old Testament law. They hold up Moses' rules on divorce. They question Jesus in effort to broaden Moses' rules. They wanted more exceptions so that they could divorce easier. And they want to see if there's a way in which they can open that door. Jesus pushes back. He says, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning to end, it's been this way, right? God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Now, he doesn't answer what they want. In fact, what he answers is more harsh than what they wanted. And so they come back, they push back, and they say, well, what about Moses? Like, they wanted it to broaden, but now they're hoping that they can still hold on to Moses' law. Like, Moses gave us permission to get divorces in case of adultery, can we still do that, right? And they press for it. And Jesus replies this way. He says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. Again, he upholds Moses' standard. He upholds this rule that Moses had given them where divorce was acceptable in a case of adultery. But do you recognize what Jesus points out? The standard that exists that was given by Moses is already the low standard according to God. It's already lower. The standard is given to us only because we have hard hearts, because we have problems. The Pharisees wanted freedom. They wanted Jesus to expand what possibilities could be. And Jesus says, no, there's actually a higher standard. He says the standard is low for you because you have hard hearts. And it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't expand or broaden out what is acceptable in comparison to the Old Testament. 
He actually holds to a higher standard. He doesn't broaden the scope of freedom. He doesn't lower the standard. Instead, he tightens the expectations. He raises the bar. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount. He says this. He says, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's fascinating is that we try to find workarounds for all these rules like adultery. And it was the same for the Jewish audience that Jesus was talking to. They made up these exceptions, these loopholes, these ways that they could get around the law of God. And Jesus says, you've been trying to get around this bar here, this standard that was given. You're trying to find a way to lower it even further. You look at the Greek culture around you. You look at the Roman culture around you. Christians today, we look at the culture that's around us that finds more things acceptable. And we're constantly looking to lower God's standards and make more things acceptable. And Jesus says, you shouldn't even look at a woman in lust. Jesus... Jesus doesn't just support the standards that we see in the Old Testament. He actually raises the bar. Which means, don't miss this, which means that it's even more scandalous whenever Jesus would hang around and associate with people who are known for their sexual immorality. Can you appreciate that? Can you appreciate that Jesus, who creates a higher standard than what we have for Moses in the Old Testament, is the one who routinely scandalized the people around him by associating with those who are known for sexual immorality? He was surrounded by the prostitutes and the adulterers and people who didn't get it right. He didn't widen the scope of sexuality. He didn't lower the standard for what is socially acceptable, but he refused to allow people who did not meet God's standards to interfere with the relationship with him. Regardless of whether or not you meet the standard, you're welcome in his presence. Isn't that fascinating? Paul responds in a similar way. Not exactly the same, but in a similar way. He upholds this high standard, but then he refuses to see himself as morally superior. It's fascinating to me. Paul writes these three passages that we found in the New Testament. In the larger context of two of those three passages, he points out something significant. In Romans chapter 1, Paul calls out this same-sex sexual relationship. And if you recall, he uses words like shameful and indecent, this offensive language. And oftentimes, within the homosexual community, there's this feeling like maybe Paul's just pointing the finger, that maybe Christians are just pointing the finger and attacking a specific kind of group. It's not true. Romans 1 is is part of this massive introduction to the book that reaches this crescendo in Romans chapter 3. In chapter 1, Paul goes after the Gentiles, the people who are not Jewish. And then in chapter 2, he goes after the Jewish community who had historically misunderstood what God was all about. In chapter 3, he brings them together and he's giving them all this this verbal tongue lashing, all right? He's going after every single one of them for how they've messed up. And it reaches this big crescendo in Romans uh, 3.23, this famous verse that most of you are probably familiar with where Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul isn't pointing out the sins of same-sex relationships because he sees them as offensive or uglier or anything worse than anything else. He isn't attacking the sins of others. He's making the point of how badly every single person needs Jesus. He says, we've all sinned. 
In 1 Timothy chapter uh, 1, Paul lists off that wide variety of sins that we looked at before. It's kind of that strange grouping of everything that he mentions. But then just a couple verses later, after he mentions these weird collective list of things that he calls sin, just a few verses later in verse 15, he says this. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He draws our attention in. Here's a trustworthy saying. Pay attention to this. Memorize this. This is a powerful thing. And he says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a big idea, right? And also maybe not that huge of an idea. I mean, it's kind of basic of a Christian idea. Why is he drawing our attention to this? I think it's the next few words. Paul adds this of whom I am the worst, which I think is so interesting. Paul feels so strongly about this phrase, of whom I am the worst, that he repeats it again in verse 16. He reinforces. If Paul were to choose a title, his title would be Paul the Worst. He's a blasphemer. He's a persecutor. He's an insolent opponent of God. In fact, if you read on in this passage, Paul suggests in this passage that he was saved only to prove that the least deserving person can be redeemed. That's his attitude. Do you see the pattern here? Do you see the posture? Do you see the attitude? Paul would later write this to the Galatian church. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Christians, we had better have a right perspective. We had better have a large measure of humility and gentleness. There's another place in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus is talking to a crowd. His ministry is getting more tense. The cross is coming closer into view. He's talking about the end times, and there's a lot of weird language about what's going, what it's going to be like and, and when he returns, and he brings heaven and earth back together, and, and he mentions that there's not going to be marriage. Now, that's kind of a weird thing for him to, mer- to mention, except that the crowd had just asked some questions about that, and so he tells them that there's not going to be any marriage after he returns. And maybe, maybe that's disappointing to you, Maybe that's freeing to you. What we do know from Jesus is this. Marriage is a temporary relationship. It's not eternal. That it's designed to point us to a greater reality. And at the resurrection, at the time when heaven meets earth, no one who has chosen Jesus over sexual fulfillment will have missed out that there's something bigger out there, that there's something better out there. And we can't fathom it. I I know this doesn't make sense to you. It really doesn't even make a whole lot of sense to me. But if you're going to compare a fulfilling sexual relationship in this world to the relationship with Jesus in the next, it's going to make human sexuality seem so small. It's like going to Taylor Swift's movie instead of showing up at her concert tour. I mean, it's nice, but it's not equal It's not as good. From what I've heard, I don't know. (laughs) I want to speak to those of you who may be feeling this same-sex attraction. Maybe you're struggling. You're wondering if it's possible to be in a relationship with Jesus and be in a same-sex relationship with someone that you feel attraction to. You're wondering if you have to give one of those two relationships up. 
You're wondering if you can be forgiven for your past. You're wondering if it's worth giving up a future relationship. I want you to hear that there's more to life than sex. It's not what our culture would say. It's not what most people would say. It seems as if our culture is so obsessed with sex that there isn't anything in the world possibly higher than sexual fulfillment. But it's not true. There's more to life than sex, and there's more to you. There's more to who you are than who you are attracted to. You are more than who you're attracted to. You are not defined by who you desire. And the God who would ask you to sacrifice of yourself is the same God who made an incredible sacrifice on your behalf. He has not asked you to do something that he himself has not done. Paul writes to that idea in Romans chapter 12. He says, therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul says to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Can you sacrifice yourself to the God who has sacrificed himself to you? Attraction isn't a sin. Desire isn't a sin, but according to God's word, as best I understand it, acting on attractions or desires for a same-sex sexual relationship would be a sin. Could you be able to give something up? And to be fair, I don't know anyone who's serious about following Jesus who hasn't had to give something up. For most of us, it's a list. It's not just one thing. And for most of us, especially men, there's likely something sexual that we are called to give up in order to follow Jesus. If you're feeling same-sex attraction, would you be willing? And would you also notice this? Do not conform any longer. The very next thing Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I can't transform you, and I, I really can't, quite frankly, even transform myself. But I believe that my God can bring about change in me. And I know that that isn't always satisfactory. I know that's not always satisfying. But I do really, truly believe that there is more to life than sex. For everyone else in this room, you also need to know that there's more to life than sex. We'll talk about that more next week, but if you aren't treating people like Jesus, this is the big idea for you, if you aren't treating people like Jesus and Paul, then you're doing it wrong. You need to hear that if you call yourself a Jesus follower, but you aren't responding like Jesus or like Paul, then you're doing it wrong. If you've pushed someone out of your life because they aren't righteous enough for you, you don't look like Jesus. Do you see that? If you've pushed someone out of your life because they aren't good enough according to your standard, you don't look like Jesus. If you see yourself as better than other sinners, you don't look anything like Paul. If you think that, that by not being homosexual, you're somehow superior to people who have those desires and attractions, then you're lying to yourself and you need to repent. And there may even be someone in your life that you need to go and make it right. Jesus and Paul never affirmed what they call sin, but they never allowed sin to prevent them from loving. Guys, these aren't easy conversations. And there is so very much more that we can say, and there's so much more that we can even listen to. But I think it'd be appropriate for us to just close in some prayer.
What I'd like to do is I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray for those who are struggling. I'd like to pray for those who are struggling with those that they love who, who hurt. I want to pray for our church. So why don't you join me in this. God, I come before you today grateful for how much you have forgiven me, how much you have loved me. And God, I recognize that I look a whole lot more like Paul being the worst of all sinners than I do looking like your son, Jesus. God, I pray for, for people in this room, in this community who are struggling with the attractions and desires that they feel and they're trying to understand and figure out what that means for a relationship with you. God, I pray that you would comfort their hearts, that you bring clarity to their minds, to give them the courage necessary to be serious about following you. God, I pray for so many uh, parents and grandparents, family members, friends in this room who hurt watching someone else struggle in this. God, I pray that you would comfort their hearts as well and that you would use them as instruments of your grace in this world. God, I pray for this church. God, I pray that Cap City would be known as a place that does not waver on truth but holds firmly to grace. That we would uphold our best understandings and knowledge of who you are while doing everything we possibly can to break down any barrier that would prevent someone from knowing you. And God, I pray that this would not be a place of hate, neglect, but that we would love. God, you are good, and your grace is enough. Help us to live in that grace. Amen.
done for you. Let them, your bodies, be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Father, we want to be able to worship you the way that you've intended, to live the way that you've intended. So we ask you right now to cleanse us from our sin, to cleanse us from what we have done that is live for our lives instead of live for yours. We want our agenda to be gone. We want to only live for you. Teach us what it looks like to sacrifice that. And then when, if you speak to us, that we will listen. That no matter what, if you have to mess us up, you have to start from scratch, please do so. So that we can live the way that you want us to. We want to look like Jesus Christ. We want to be a light, to be his love to this world. Show us how to do that, Father. Help us to do that willingly, to trust that you have something better for us. All of these things we pray in Jesus' holy name. Jesus, clean with these blood. Jesus, love. 
granddaughter and they have trusted me enough to do the announcements this morning so let's get it um so first thing right around the corner is trunk or tree that is obviously on october 31st halloween from six to eight we need candy and volunteers i wish i could get up here and tell you that we had enough candy for this event i could have done that last week but this is what i walked into the office and saw this week if you don't know who Ben and Doc are, they are our ministers here. And I walked in and saw the candy that someone brought into the office. I saw chocolate fingerprints all over the keyboard and everything. So you can thank your ministers for that. If you don't want the children of our community eating candy from Easter, I beg you to please bring in candy. You can drop it off in the trunk outside or in the office sometime this week. And if you would like to host a trunk, you can go to capcity.info to sign up for that. Um, next thing, uh, the men's breakfast. If you are a man and you like to eat, and I'm going to assume that's almost all of the men in this room, um, you can come to the men's breakfast on October 28th. That is from 7.30 to 9. So you got to get up early for that one. And then we have two events um, that we are helping support um, organizations that help out our community and that is going to be at the King Center and the Sunshine Center. They are both doing chili and a silent auction. So um, now is the part of the service that I would tell you to, as Doc says, get out and leave and go be people of Jesus. Um, so if you are waiting to go get your uh, table for lunch, now's your cue. You can go. But if you would like to stay and do one last song with us, I think you'll really like this one. So feel free to stick around and worship with us.
Go show the world! Go show the world! <laughs>